So here we are once again. Here we are once again. Uh, we, you know, we did it. We so we just came back from not just, but but uh, uh, Sun and Fun happened, and, and Sun and Fun happened. You just got back home. Huh? I just got back home. I'm back home in Dover, and uh, and that's kind of fun. But uh, where it's like unbelievably 90 degrees today. This is more of a weather thing for later on. But uh, here's what I wanted to talk about. So we had a blast. I had a blast. We'd had a blast at yes. Sun and Fun. Um, it was really kind of for me um, the, the the first full blown sun and fun since the pandemic and uh, and that was very pleasant pleasing and pleasant and enjoyable and i just had a, had a good time um as we often do uh i i got a chance to meet with a lot of listeners while we were there and this is and we've been doing that for years and they're always awesome and they're always fascinating and um and and they're our huge part of of what we do with this podcast um and i kind of i don't know if we, if we say that often enough that the listeners are just just terrific and awesome um some of them we meet over and over again at every single thing we do and some of them just kind of uh, new people appear and we meet new people and, and- not just some, but many yeah. of them yeah. have become good, close friends over the years. Uh, that's absolutely true. Um, and uh, it, it's, it occurs to me, now this is where it gets a little goofy, it occurs to me that they ought to have a name. <laughs> it's like, we gotta, you know, it's like, I don't know what it is, though. It's like, the the pe- not the peanut gallery, but like the peanut gallery is a name of the audience, you know, or the, I don't know what other examples are, right? We, we need to give them a, a title. We need to give them a an identity. Uh, does, does Taylor Swift have a name for her fans? Uh, she does, as a matter of fact. I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan, but I kind of know what you're talking about, and I think she does. And that's what I'm talking about. You're absolutely yeah. on the right track, okay? I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan no, either, no. but if there's anybody who begs... Yeah. To have a name for her fans, yeah, yeah it's like I don't know whether it's posse or so. I, and I don't know whether you've got any ideas off the top of your head. I've been kind of thinking about this, and I don't have any really clever ideas. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I don't know, do you? What should we call them? You know, it's I don't like, know, co-pilots. Co-pilots. So for a while, we were calling a, a subset of these folks uh, something like the UCAP Air Cavalry or something like that, which is interesting, but I'm not wild about the military well, there, there connotation. Was a, there was of that. even a smaller cadre called Bad Boys of UCAP. The Bad Boys, like but that's the Bad Boys. We're not going to steal their title. Yeah, we can't do that. No, that's no, that's a special no. that's a special no. case. But uh, but there ought to be a name. I, I uh, yeah. So there's a there's another totally unrelated aviation. Um, um, not pod, well, it is a podcast, but it's mostly a video blog. Uh, YouTube kind of thing, um, where they call their listeners nerd fighters, all right, which has kind of got a bizarre history, um, and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that would be no suitable. no that yeah, wouldn't work okay. for us yeah, obviously. Yeah, the yeah. point is that they they call their fan, they call their listeners, they call their 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 uh, audience the, the nerd fighters, and it's become quite a thing. It's not just a funny reference; it's like a a a, 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 a part of what they do. The nerd fighters, uh, their audience, and our, and our audience is part of what we do. And I think they, I'd like to give them a name. Is my point here? So I would like to 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 kind of as part of the process of really consciously involving I don't know I'm making I'm, this sounds silly and I'm, I'm very serious about this the listeners are awesome uh, I'm certainly not trying to in any way you know make fun of them or anything no like that. no no, no, no. Uh, I, I, that should be understood yeah but 
I'm not trying to make fun of them, but I am saying it would be fun if we had a name for them, all right, yes. if, if we had some way to reference them, okay? Um, so uh, you and I should think about this, and I would also well, invite the listeners yes, to make yes, suggestions along these lines. I would empty your e- email box out before you post Yeah, episode. no, I want the more the merrier. Send me lots. I want to I want to hear people's no, suggestions. No, 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 before you post this. Yeah, so okay. That, you, know, yeah. you have space. I empty my mailbox every day. I'm to have you know, all right. I I'm very proud of this. I'm just you. You brought this up. I wasn't going to bring this up, but uh, since I'm really very proud of the fact that people talk about inbox zero, all right. And um, I don't get to inbox zero, but I get to inbox ten most every day. That's um, not even. I'm not even going to respond. I know. I know. I, I thought that might make you make you a little. Er. So, okay. Anyways, uh, our listeners are awesome and they need a name. And um, I I, I would love to hear suggestions from you and from me and from anybody else who has some ideas of what the name should be for the UCAP listeners who are terrific. There we go. That's, there's, there's, there's our challenge. There's our challenge. There's our challenge. And on that note, I want to say welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson, coming to you from crazily warm, 90 degree in April, Dover, New Hampshire. It's like I came back from Florida. You were telling me that it's literally warmer here now than it is in Florida. Yes, yes it is. Yeah, Absolutely. which please It's a nice day here. It's a bit breezy. Yeah. There's some white puffies. It was, it was kind of foggy this morning mm-hmm. at dawn, but uh, that got cleared up. Too yeah. sweet, and uh, here we are. Yeah, here we are, um, and that's that's Jeb Burnside, one of my my very very good friends, who's here in the in the virtual hangar. And uh, um, how, so, other than that, what's going on? How are you doing? You're, you're recovering from the the the, the guest who came to dinner, the, the, the house guest from hell. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yes, uh, to the extent that recovery is necessary. Yeah, thank um, you. Um, been puttering around the house, uh, you know. Um, I actually sat down and started working on a magazine today. I've got uh, um, some some new um, things going on uh, with it, so I wanted to get a head start this month. And uh, I've got some some conflicts on the tail end of the month, uh, uh, deadline week for me. So um, it, it, you know, I got got to get a head start on a lot of this, and and uh, I'll be out of town for a few days, and yada yada. So uh, it is what it is, but uh, that's what I've been up to. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, it, you mentioned the weather there where you are. Apparently on the other coast of Florida, they're getting some crazy rain. It's like. Yeah. I mean, Al Gore, pick up the white courtesy phone closest <laughs> I so. to you. I mean. Yeah. No, um, no. I, no joke. The, I mean, it's the, like, the, climate change Fort, is having funny effects. Yeah, Fort Lauderdale had to shut down today because they've got. Fort Lauderdale Airport, not the town. Fort Lauderdale Airport. Well, the whole city's it, it kind of hurt. Yeah. Uh, hurting. Uh, but the airport had to shut down. Won't reopen until tomorrow if then. Uh, they, they had literally inches and inches of water uh, co- covering the entire airport, from what I could tell. Uh, some videos were floating around. There's a, uh, an A320 taxiing uh, through the water. Uh, the n- engine nacelles are a few inches above the water. I'm surprised they didn't suck water into the engines. Mm. The, the water's up to the axles on the nose wheel. Ouch. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um uh, some airport vehicles splashing through, making, you know, big bow waves and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is from like a day and a half of rain. They had 25 inches of rain uh, overnight or something like that. Yeah, I mean, just like, let's, let's, let's go back and say that again. 25 inches, two feet of uh-huh. rain in a day. Uh-huh. That's just, that's just astounding. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's... Yeah. And, and that's, you know, we were talking um, before you left 
last weekend about, hey, the forecast is for, you know, this cold front coming through and then it's going to stagnate and it's going to turn into an occluded front and it's going to do all this. There's there's a low winding up in the Gulf. There's this, there's that, there's the other thing. And you're picking a pretty good time to get the heck out of Dodge. Um, but fortunately, it didn't develop that way here in Sarasota. Unfortunately for Fort Lauderdale, it kind of sort of did. In, in Miami and, and uh, uh, other points up and down that, that particular coast have gotten hammered or rained on or, or watered out or whatever you want to call it. So Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not on the list, but one of the stories I saw recently had to do with the airlines are starting to say that climate change weather is starting to be a real impactor. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not on the list of things we, we agreed to talk about. Yeah. But, uh, there is a link here. Um the Southwest uh, is Southwest Airlines is saying extreme weather is a growing concern for them. Yeah, the the, the weather is getting more extreme, and uh, you know this this comes back to uh, you know things that I've harped on for years that. Uh, uh, you know, there's there is weather that no airplane should be flying through. Yeah, um, we'll 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 push this off till later on. But I'm going to put on the list for some future episode to talk about weather, um, and if so, how climate change weather differences are affecting general aviation flying, which would be an interesting subject. Maybe we could well, find. I think the quick answer is of course. Yes. So we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Hey, listen. So um, we, we've been doing this podcast for 15, 16 years. Did you know yeah. that? Wow. We, we, one of these days, we're going to get it right. Man, oh, man. Okay. But one of the things we've done right many times over the years um, is talk about um, uh, an organization called the General Aviation Modifications Incorporated, uh, mm-hmm. a.k.a. GAMI, um, and particularly about uh, a gentleman by the name of George Brawley, um, who, who you sort of know. I'm not sure what your exact relationship to him is. W- w- tell me about George Brawley. Well, George is um, stone aviation junkie for one. Uh, he's been flying airplanes, um, probably. His bio uh, says since he was like sixteen or something. I, I, I think that's right. He he's, he started probably as early as I did, or a little bit earlier actually. Uh, and uh, um, he's a, an engineer. I don't know the exact uh, discipline of engineering uh, in which he uh, was trained and educated. Uh, he's also an attorney, uh, and uh, that gives him some unique insights into a lot of different things associated with general aviation. I first got to know George um, back in the 90s uh, through what was then the uh, uh, beach list, the old email list uh, format uh, of um, uh, messaging and, and uh, uh, meeting online and things, and uh, that uh, kind of transmogrified uh, over the years um, into uh, a website called Beach Talk um, and uh, had its roots, if you will, back uh, on CompuServe back in the 80s with something called the AVSIG or the Aviation Special Interest. Group. I remember AVSIG, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, just as um, those connections have have stood the test of time. Um, I've known George either virtually or in person uh, uh, since then. Yeah. Uh, and and some of it, you know, I, I see, I've known George. I, 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 you know, never been to his house for dinner, although he has been in my airplane. Uh, um, we know each other, you know, casually and professionally at the same time. Yeah. Now you ran into him at Sun and Fun 
I did. Uh, and I did. Uh, you invited him to come onto the podcast. And, I and did, and he, he graciously accepted. Yeah. And uh, we actually managed to uh, get together for a long conversation. Yeah, we had a very nice conversation, um, and uh, it's pretty fascinating. We're going to hear that conversation in a second. Um, before, we, before, though, we cut away to that conversation, uh, I kind of wanted to kind of, um, um, kind of uh, I don't know what the right term would be, but kind of, he mentioned, during, in his conversation, he mentioned a handful of acronyms that he didn't uh-huh. expand, and I was wondering if you could kind of brief us in advance on um, ASTM. ASTM, uh, formerly known as the American Society for Testing and Materials. Uh, ASTM is just a shorthand for what has now become the ASTM International. Uh, And as its uh, former name uh, suggests, it's a standard-setting organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Not unlike, for example, the Society of, of Automotive Engineers or um, uh, similar organizations for uh, uh, computer standards, uh, uh, things of this sort. Uh, um, ASTM is, is uh, again, a standard-setting organization. One of the things that they have done over the years is develop the uh, uh, existing standard for 100 low lead. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he also re- mentioned um, Pappy many times. What was Pappy? Pappy is Pappy. actually. Uh, Papa Alpha Foxtrot India. Pappy, excuse me. Pappy. You know, I, I made the same mistake uh, in, in, in the conversation. So, But Pappy is the, uh, or was, the Piston Aviation Fuels Initiative, something that the FAA created back in, I'm going to punt and say 2011, 2012, something like that, which was, as its name implies... Um, designed and created to come up with an unleaded aviation gasoline. Um, in in many ways, it was kind of designed to fail, uh, and in fact did fail, uh, circa 2015-2016. Um, and uh, um, I'm optimistic George will go into some detail on that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, what was the other acronym? Eagle. An, Eagle. What is Eagle. 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 Eagle is a program established by the FAA also, uh, just recently actually, within the last year, and it stands for Eliminate Aviation Gasoline Lead Emissions, Eagle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and I don't want to know who developed that. Uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah. But it's, it's an ongoing uh, endeavor by the agency, bringing together industry and, uh, uh, and government officials. Um, their goal is to... Uh, Build an unleaded aviation gasoline by the year 2030. Mm-hmm. And they were formed last year or so, so they set an eight-year timetable for them, for their efforts. Um, it was more than a little interesting that uh, GAMI got uh, fleet-wide STC approvals for their G100UL, G100 unleaded aviation gasoline, just months after Eagle was, was formed. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen uh, what tensions uh, there will be between uh, reality, if you will, and, uh, and Eagle. It remains to be seen what, if any, um, what thing will come out of the Eagle initiative. Uh, but we got, you know, coming up on uh, uh, six and a half years to see. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, there we go. Okay, great. Those Is there the, anything else? That, no, those were the ones I wanted to okay. get uh, expanded okay. before we went into this. Anything you want to add before we listen to? No, I, I, uh, I, it's, it's, 
we'll let our listeners decide, but uh, um, uh, we're, we're, we've just finished the conversation with, uh, with George, the interview with George. And uh, um, we all know kind of sort of the, the, that G100UL has been approved. Uh, it's, it's been STC'd for the fleet, uh, the fleet of, of piston uh, 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 aviation aircraft and engines. Um, we know that uh, we're kind of in that never-never land between the approval and the actual fielding of the fuel, the actual delivery uh, into our fuel tanks of that particular fuel. And I think we all know also that it's probably going to start in California first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the reasons why uh, are, are explained, uh, in, you know, in yeah. the conversation we're about to play. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's let's listen to this. This is uh, George Brawley, the uh, head of engineering for GAMI, the General Aviation Modifications Incorporated. George Brawley, welcome to Uncontrolled Airspace. Uh, um, George uh, and I go a little go way back uh, to the old beach list from. I guess the early aughts, and uh, um, it's great to see you again, even if it's over a video camera. Yes, that too. Good to be with you, Jim. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, obviously, the the big topic of uh, of the day these days um, is G one hundred UL, the uh, unleaded aviation gasoline that you and Gammy and, and your entire team have have spent years developing. And uh, I, I want to come back to the current status of it, of where we stand as far as uh, not so much approvals, we know about that, but about actually getting to the point of putting some of it in my gas tank. Um, what was the, the catalyst that set you and Gammy on the path to developing this fuel? Well... <clears throat> You know, the catalyst started out with a conversation that I had with uh, a guy named Carl Goulet. Oh, yeah. uh, All the way back in 1998. He was the retired VP of engineering for Continental, and he had worked with us to get the game ejectors approved in 1996. And he was working with us on a couple of other things. And he had seen that we had a pretty good uh, skill set uh, and some technical abilities with respect to data acquisition. And he made an observation one day as we came down from 25,000 feet that you guys, with your data acquisition ability, you really ought to build a test stand. And we sat down and talked about it when we got on the ground, and we decided to do that. And we had it up and running by the end of 99. Um, Well, that led to a situation during the 2002, 2008 or 9 timeframe when a number of the major oil companies, uh, three of them to be exact, uh, that were interested in trying to find a solution for an unleaded high-octane AVE gas they came to us to test their fuel formulations because they didn't want to test it at the FAA's tech center and they didn't have aircraft engines themselves and they needed it tested on full-scale aircraft engines. And so we did, on a contract basis, we did that testing for those three large companies. 
Uh, none of those fields worked. Uh, frankly, there weren't any of them that were really even close to working. Hmm. Um, but we learned a fair amount, and we learned a little bit about fuel chemistry. And then the Obama administration came into office in January of uh, 2009, and almost immediately the panic set in because the Obama EPA uh, was proposing an endangerment finding to get rid of lead. And that started creating a panic in the pilot population, culminating in almost something just short of hysteria <laughs> at the, uh, I believe, the October AOPA convention down in uh, Florida. And, I mean, it was, it was an intensely... A hot topic. You know, people were talking about it out in the halls and buttonholing people, and uh, it was as close to a panic in general aviation as you know any of us have ever seen. So as Tim and I were flying home in my turbo normalized Bonanza, we were talking about it, and we thought, well, you know, we know a little bit about this, and we have this test stand right here. Maybe we ought to try and take a stab at it. And I had a few ideas on how to how to do that based on what we had learned. So in late October of 2009, we started making barrels of fuel and putting them up on the test stand and running them and testing them. By mid-December, we had filed our first patent application based on what we had learned. Um, and shortly after that, we submitted a uh, an STC application to the FAA. Back in what year? 2009, December 2009. Yeah, it's been, 13 the, years. it's been 13 that's, years. That's when you submitted the initial STC application? Yes, correct. Um, in January, uh, when you do a significant project like that, the local office, in this case the Fort Worth ACO, they have to send a notice up to the uh, cognizant uh, directorate, which at that time would have been the engine propeller directorate, which was uh, located in Burlington, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And so they sent that up there, and I got a phone call from the head fuels guy for the FAA, a guy named Mark Remison, in early January. And there was another third party on the call from one of the aircraft companies. And basically what he said was, is, George, I need you to go to ASTM. I don't want you to do a uh, an STC because the FAA doesn't know anything about fuels and we need you to go to ASTM. Mm -hmm. um, I pushed back on that pretty hard because I had seen how slow ASTM is. And basically, he pretty much gave me an ultimatum and said, if you don't go through, if you go through ASTM, I'll try and make it easy and quick because I can help. But if you try and do it through an STC, it's going to be so long and so hard and so difficult, you're going to wish you didn't. Hmm. Well, I guess that second prediction came true, although I don't regret having done it. But we did, in fact, later that spring in March at the engine propeller directorate at a meeting up there with the director of the engine propeller directorate, a good guy named Fran Favera, we did agree to at least make the effort to go to ASTM. And so we made a proposal to ASTM, went to one of their meetings, and basically started the project with ASTM. 
and that was in June of 2010. And we found out a few months later uh, that one of the, you know, the people, one of the one of the major oil companies that was present, uh, had basically started filing patents against our intellectual property that we had disclosed at ASTM. Hmm. Interesting. And of course, they all take a blood oath not to do that. But we went back to the FAA and said, no, that's it. That's enough. We're not going to do that. Uh, fortunately, we had already filed the necessary patents in advance of that so that they didn't end up cutting us off the knees. Um, so we went to work to do it as an STC. Um, had a lot of opposition within various quarters of the FAA. And fortunately, uh, the then lady in charge of certification, uh, uh, Dorinda Baker, mm -hmm. she intervened in the spring of 2011, in March, April, and May, and she basically relieved everybody that was not doing anything on our project, and included Mr. Rumison, and put a whole new team in charge. Uh, and she convened that meeting to do that restart of our project in her conference room at 800 Independence Avenue in Washington. And she sat in on the meeting personally. And we got a lot done that day, and we got a lot done over the next 12 months. And then, or during that process, the FAA started an, uh, an ARC program, which was the planning stage to do the PAFI program. And they got the PAPI program stood up in 2012 or 13. And basically our project came to a grinding stop uh, while PAPI got started. Yeah, yeah. We made very slow progress after that. Uh, but there was some progress. Um, when, you say, when you say you made very slow progress after that, what was it about PAPI that slowed you down? Well, the FAA asked us to get in PAFI because, frankly, the candidate fuels that they had gone out and recruited to be in PAFI, anybody that knew anything about fuel chemistry knew they could not work. Uh -huh. And they wanted to have a winner in their program. And when they asked us to get in, I said, well, I've got a couple of questions. And I, what are they? We'll do anything we can to help. I said, well, we've already been doing this for three years. If we get in PAFI, are we going to get credit for all the R&D and the FAA's approvals that we've already got logged in, uh, in the FAA's files? No, no, no. You have to back up and start all over again. <laughs> Wonderful. So then the other aspect, the other question I had was, well, I've got one other question. I said, uh, if we get in the PAFI program, the way I understand, it's kind of one and done. You submit a specification. And you don't ever get to change it if you learn something during the testing process. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. And I said, well, I said, that's crazy. That's that's a prescription for failure. That's not the way research and development is done. Well, no, no, if you get in PAPI, you got to give us a specification when you start, and it's one and done. And uh, if you uh, change the specification, and even in any minor detail, you got to start over again. Well, you, I, that made no sense at all. I'm sorry for interrupting. Do you get the impression that maybe some people weren't acting in good faith in that arena? 
Well, they were acting in good faith in the sense that they wanted us in the PAPI program, and that was, in fact, their rules at the time. However, about four years later, they figured out they were impractical, and they started changing the rules to accommodate the remaining people that were in the PAPI program. Huh. Uh, so, you know, it, it was they were making it up as they went along. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it turns out in 2017 at Oshkosh, there was a presentation by PAPI with the senior PAPI people from the FAA on the stage at Oshkosh. And they put a slide up there, and I've got a copy of it. And basically the slide said, well, you know, the fuels in the PAPI program, they may work for some engines, and another fuel may work for another engine. But there's not any of these fuels in the PAPI program they are going to work for all the engines. Huh. Well, that was a declaration of defeat. Yes, it was. And by the following year, the PAPI program has, was pretty much more abundant. Yeah. Our program is still alive, but it was being slow rolled by some of the people that were then running our program who were also in the PAFI program and were trying to figure out some way to revive the PAFI program. So, that, uh, yeah, I don't know what their motives were, but they weren't to trying to find a fleet-wide solution in the shortest possible time. Um, so the program continued to be stalled and stalled and stalled and fortunately in uh, July, early July of 2020 uh, I went and met with uh, Mark Baker personally at the little air show at Turkey, Missouri Mark Baker from AOPA sure and we were supposed to have a one-hour breakfast on Saturday morning. It turned into a three-hour breakfast. Uh, I went through the whole project, where we were and what was going wrong with it. And I told him, I said, you know, we got to have somebody, something to motivate the FAA or we're not going to get there. Yeah. And I said, um, you don't know when the EPA is going to come crashing down on your membership's heads, but... Uh, it could be sooner, and you know we don't know where the election's going this fall. But if the election doesn't go the right direction, then you're going to have a new EPA in the spring of '21, and no telling where that EPA is going to go back on another endangerment finding. Well, to his everlasting credit, Baker understood the implications of all of that. And he went to the then Air One, who was Dorinda Baker's successor. That was Earl Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And two weeks later, I got a personal phone call from Earl Lawrence. I mean, we had known each other going all the way back to when he was at EAA. Sure. Didn't know each other well, but we had known each other. And, you know, he had been the director at the engine propeller, at the uh, small airplane directorate in Kansas City when this project started. We'd had some interactions then. And he called me up and said, George, he said, I've been looking at your certification file. This project's taken way too long. Uh, and it should have been done five, you know, uh, four or five years ago, maybe six. So I'm going to remove everybody that's been doing nothing and let them go do nothing someplace else. <laughs> Literally said that. And I'm going to put a whole new team in charge. Well, that scared me to death because I knew how much stuff there was for a whole new team to try and digest, you know. 
and I thought it would slow everything down forever. He said, no, no, George, I'll put some good people in there and they'll get caught up and, and, you know, trust me. So we did. And two weeks later, we got a phone call from a whole new team. This time, the whole team was in Wichita, Kansas at the Wichita Aircraft Certification Office. I didn't know any of those people, except I did know the manager because he had been involved back when we uh, came up with the AMOC that salvaged the T-34 fleet. Right, right. And so I knew uh, Vu Nguyen uh, from, from those days, and he knew us and knew that we were capable of doing, you know, innovative and high-quality work. And that helped a little bit uh, to get started, even though it was in a structures area instead of a fuel chemistry area. And the people that were put on the project were people that had been involved in earlier uh, fuel certification projects with some of the auto gas and the EAA stuff. And maybe the Peterson thing. So they had a little background and they were smart and they were not intimidated by the difficult stuff. And I said, so how are we going to do this? And they said, well, we want you to give us 10 days, two weeks to look through the file. It's a big file. I said, guys, I said, there's a lot of material in there. And I'd be happy to start in and put on a, you know, this was during the middle of COVID, which complicated things, uh, a, a series of Zoom calls and walk you through that stuff and answer your questions in real time uh, if you think that would help. No, 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 we can do all that. Okay, so about 10 days, two weeks after that, I get another call from them, and they said, let's talk about those Zoom calls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we started in the 10th of August of 2020. And once, sometimes twice a week, we'd start a Zoom call at about 1 o'clock, 1.30 in the afternoon. They didn't put a time limit on it. We'd go from, from you know, 1.30 to 2.30 or 3.30 and sometimes all the way to 5 o'clock. And I spent most of the rest of the week putting together PowerPoints and documents and stuff. And we did that every week from the first week in August all the way through August, all the way through September, and into the first 10 days of October. Wow. And we got through with one of those then. And they said, George, what are we doing next week? And I said, guys, I think we're finished. And they said, good, let's go to work. And nine months later, we had the first STCs at Oshkosh at 21. Obviously, you're talking about a lot of bureaucratic and um, political um, hurdles to overcome. You make it sound as if the technical hurdles were much, much smaller. What were the technical hurdles that you encountered first? <laughs> well, no, the technical hurdles it turned out to be enormous and fundamental. Uh, we discovered when we had built the test stand in 98 and 99, I had met with one of the people that ran the FAA Tech Center's test facility, who was a, an airplane guy, and he was actually at Oshkosh where I met him. And I showed him some of what we were doing. He said, well, you need to come up and visit us and let us show you the detonation algorithm that we're using to quantify the intensity of detonating combustion events. I said, sure. So 10 days later, I was at uh, Atlantic City, and I went through this algorithm they had. They'd written a paper on it. And it looked wonderful to me. Um, 
customer. We started using it in 98-99 and started using it uh, uh, when we did our fuel project. And we, you know, uh, we were doing that starting in 2009 going forward. And by about the end of 2010 or the beginning of 2011, we started noticing some issues with that detonation test algorithm. Hmm. What kind? And it, we kept working with it, working with it, and we kept seeing results that didn't make any sense. And finally, we realized that there was some something fundamental to be learned. And uh, in the process of exploring this, we found a a real fundamental flaw with that algorithm. Hmm. And we took that to the FAA team, and they looked at it, and they went, hmm, you know, guys, there may be something to this. George, why don't you do us a favor? Why don't you put together a presentation and take it to ASTM and explain this problem? Because... ASTM had adopted that algorithm as a standard, as a fabled, uh, you know, uh, can't question it, can't challenge it, ASTM standard. Uh, So we did that, and I did a presentation to the ASTM's Cooperative Research Council in Nashville in April of 2014. And it was interesting. I put up on the screen the issues and one of the issues at the end of the presentation was that there was fundamentally a ninth grade algebra error in the algorithm. <laughs> Jeb, you can't make this up. So another reason not to maybe go with the ASTM process, huh? So we had to start in and develop our own test not method, because we were using the same internal cylinder pressure transducers that the tech center was using, or a close cousin there too. But the the numerical mathematical algorithm to data crunch data that's being collected at, at 50,000 samples per second per cylinder, and data crunch that into a single number that tells you how bad that last combustion event was. Mm-hmm. And those combustion events are happening 20 times a second. It takes a lot of computer power to do that um, in real time. And so we did. We reached out, researched the literature, found an algorithm that worked really well. It was a published algorithm by actually by the company that made, uh, made those pressure transducers that were used all over the world for doing combustion engineering. And we tested it, and we found out that if you used it, that all the problems we had detected using the uh, algorithm at the tech center, that all those problems went away. How about that? So we switched over and started using that. And at that point, the FA said, well, guys, you know, there's one thing nobody has ever done, including the FAA Tech Center, and they've never showed us that any modern pressure sensor, internal combustion cylinder, pressure transducer-based detonation algorithm for quantifying detonation intensity 
They've never showed us that any of those methods can actually be traced back to the old Sperry vibration system that was used to certify all the engines. <laughs> oh, it just gets better and better. So before we're going to let you use that algorithm to prove this fuel, you've got to run the experiments to show that you can trace this method back to the original algorithm that was used to certify, you know, all the Continental, all the Lycoming, hell, the Curtis Wright 3350 on a DC-7 was, the detonation testing was done using that technology and those algorithms. Uh, so we started to, I told him, I said, well, you know, we already know it works well, yeah, but we have to run it through the FAA's uh, uh, issue paper process. That issue paper, those are magic words. Uh -huh. uh, but that's their highest level of technical review for a proposed new means of compliance. And I said, Lord, I've been through those before. They take years. Well, we'll, we'll speed it up. We'll get it done in four, five, or six months. I said, yeah, right. No, no, we promise we'll, we'll get that done. Well, it took 14 months, but we got it done. And I will tell you, as I sit here today, talking to you, so far as I know, that is the only detonation test algorithm that has ever yet, as we speak to this day in 2023, been run through the formal FAA issue paper successfully. Hmm. Interesting. What? All of these, these hurdles, all of these, these whys uh, uh, in the road, if you will, uh, forks in the road. Did did it ever seem unobtainable uh, that you could come up with an unleaded out gas? Did it ever seem impossible? Well, we had known since two thousand and the end of two thousand eleven that the fuel worked. Because we could run it on a high compression engine with a turbocharger on our test stand mm -hmm. and run it at 20 or 30 percent of the rated power uh, above the rated power. You know, run it at 380 or 90 horsepower instead of 300 horsepower. And with this fuel, we could still pass the FA's uh, detonation test using either the old method or the, the new method. So we knew the fuel worked. Uh, so it was kind of hard to give it up uh, and just throw our hands up and walk away from it. Although I will tell you at times it was, it was frustrating. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Were there any aha moments along the way? Hey, we just cracked this with the code on this problem. What, what's the next problem we got, we got to fix. There were two of those. One of them was when I figured out what was wrong with the FAA Tech Center algorithm. Uh-huh. Sure. And another one involved some fundamental differences in different fuel chemistries and how that interrelated to some of the uh, ASTM test methods. Um, <clears throat> and it turns out that there was another fundamental error made by the industry back in 2010 when the industry abandoned the old F3 Waukesha engine used to test the aviation lean rating. 
and substituted the motor octane number engine in its place. I mean, look, this is wonky, wonky, wonky type yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But that was another fundamental problem, and we figured out why that problem existed and figured out a workaround. Uh, and so, yeah, there was, there's actually was at least three fundamental aha moments that we were managed to, to, uh, to research and understand and to implement uh, in order to be able to correctly uh, finish the project. Well, now that everything under the sun has been STC'd for this fuel, um, we're at the point where the market um, has to belly up to the bar, as if you will. Um, we're at the point where refineries have to produce this stuff, trucks and trains have to transport it, pipelines have to transport it. It has to be pumped into the, it has to be delivered to the airports. Obviously, the the uh, aircraft that take it on have to be uh, STC'd. How much longer is all that going to take? <laughs> well, you know, on September first last year, you know, eight months ago, uh, I got a an email from the FAA in Wichita about nine thirty, ten o'clock that morning, and they said, "George, please find attached." Uh, your STCs with the AML list for all of the spark ignition piston engines and all the aircraft that use those engines, all the airplanes that use those engines. And, and take the rest of the day off. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought getting to that point was the hard part. You're supposed to react to that, Jim. Yes, I, I, I was kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall, but but yeah, no, I, I get all that, and 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 let me just hasten to add here that uh, um, you know, the frustration level has to have been sky high for y'all um, throughout this process, and I cannot imagine uh, uh, how I might have reacted or what I might have done in your shoes. So I, I know you're a, both an attorney and an engineer by education and training. And uh, I can only imagine that both of those skills came in a little handy uh, trying to figure out this, this maze. You know, you're exactly right. And it's kind of perceptive, Joe, of you to say that because uh, we would have probably had to have hired a full-time staff attorney. Sure. And it would have been a nightmare explaining the technical matters to him in such a way. Uh, although I will tell you that a guy you probably know, a guy named Rams Goodlow, who mm -hmm. is a uh, intellectual property patent lawyer out in Seattle, uh, he has worked with us hand in glove, and we probably couldn't be here without to, without Reams and his mm -hmm. good work. Yeah. Um, I mean, just a superb, and he's a pilot. He goes all the way back to the old AFSIG days. Uh, um, you know, it's amazing the circle back kind of stuff that goes all the way back to the early days of AVSIG on CompuServe. I get all that. I, I was not a participant in the AVSIG, but uh, uh, caught the tail end of it with the beach list, and here we are. Yeah. So, anyway, the question of the day is, is, you know, when and where and how soon and why not sooner? And we, we had been faced for several years uh, 
with a constant uh, blaring megaphone coming from some of the trade groups, uh, maybe most prominently coming from Peter Bunce at the General Aviation Manufacturers Association, saying basically, well, nobody will ever make this fuel unless they go get an ASTM spec. No oil company will ever even entertain doing this unless they go get an ASTM specification. Um, and so, uh, you know, I thought for a while after September 1st, they might have been right. <laughs> well, didn't didn't the, the September 1st delivery of the STC just automatically create a market? Well, it did if you could find somebody to make it in large enough quantities where it could be made economical. I mean, hell, I could make it on the ramp, you know, back here 50 yards away from me. Uh, but I, you can't make it in large enough batches to, to be practical. Uh, um, so we had, in, in spite of what everybody else might have thought, actually been working with one of the large oil companies uh, very quietly and clandestinely for the previous uh, six or eight months prior to that. And they're pretty interested in doing this, except their problem is that in order to produce it, they've got to change an enormous amount of infrastructure. Right. And those people are not noted for being able to move at the speed of light. Uh, but they've been very helpful, and they have, in fact, reviewed the basically all of the technical aspects of the chemistry, the fuel specification, and that sort of thing uh, at their research laboratory. Uh, and so far, they have not been able to point out anything that was unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. I find that to be nicely reassuring. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we still started out trying to find somebody to make it. Um, some of the people in the industry were trying to help. Fuel was one of them. Uh, they're one of the four large distributors. Um, but we just weren't getting anywhere. And much to our great surprise and, and, and satisfaction, uh, about seven, eight, nine weeks ago, out of the clear blue, we get a phone call from a company that neither Tim nor I had ever really heard of. Uh, we'd heard the name, but didn't know anything about them. Turned out one of their senior executives was a private pilot, and he was tracking all this uh, in the media. And he said, I think our company ought to make your fuel. Huh. And, I, you know, Tim and I looked at each other and said, who's this? You know. <laughs> well, it turned out they're a very, very large company based all over the world, headquarters in Switzerland. And uh, they currently produce and sell jet fuel in the United States. And matter of fact, they sell jet fuel to all fuel, all four of the distributors that uh, uh, that also distribute Ave gas. So those folks are already on their their customer list. Sure. And they already source all but one of the components that's used in our fuel that they use to make other fuel chemistries uh, and chemicals in their business. They're not a refinery, but they are a huge blending company. Mm -hmm. And so they had all those sources already on their supplier, approved supplier list. 
You know, it was like a a, a deal made in heaven uh, as it came down to us. So we kept hearing all this constant back talk that nobody would ever make the field without an AS-10 specification and on and on and on and on and on. Huh. So we reported to the four major distributors, that's being Avfuel, Worldfuel, Titan, and Epic, that we thought we had somebody to produce this fuel. And uh, we needed to know if they were willing to put rail cars in Houston to pick it up and take it to California. Hmm. Well, they decided that that was a turning point. And so together with some of the other industry people, including the NATA, which is the National Air Transport Association, it's a trade group for all the FBOs, and a bunch of the Eagle people, they organized a great big giant powwow uh, in Coral Gables, Florida, uh, 10 days ago on the 4th of April, 12 days ago, 13 days ago, or 10 day, nine days ago, I guess. And they invited us to go there and to make a short 15-minute presentation. And they gave us six topics to cover in 15 minutes. <laughs> of course. This is absolutely classic for how this has gone. All these people are standing around in the background, you know, anywhere from 500 to 5,000 miles away, wringing their hands, talking about this fuel, and making plans for what we ought to do without ever bothering to talk to us. Yeah. Uh, pretty frustrating. Yeah. So I show up for that thing there in Coral Gables, and... Uh, it gets going, and I realized that the PowerPoint presentation that I had prepared was technically inappropriate for that audience. But there were three slides in there that were appropriate. And so when they finally got around, oh, and one other good thing happened because one of the senior Eagle people, a guy named Tim Smythe, who is had retired a year ago from uh, the, being the manager at the Chicago Aircraft Certification Office. He knows the rules and the regs like an encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. And he'd been very helpful to the, to the Eagle project. And he was asked by Cirrus to present the Cirrus flight test data uh, to all that group down there. And he did that at the beginning of the whole presentation. And towards the end of what he presented, I mean, we had shipped Cirrus fuel back in December, and they started testing it in January and February. And basically, all of their testing uh, confirmed uh, the validity of all the testing previously done by the FAA. And this guy, uh, Tim Smythe, who's with the Eagle program, told everybody in the room, there were about 15 people in the room and another 25 or 30 on the Zoom call, and he told him, he said, Jazz, here's the serious data. And he said, I've reviewed the certification file that uh, Gammy has shared with us. And based on my experience, the, this data uh, validates all of the FAA's previous test data. Hmm. You can hurt a pen drop, Jeb. I bet. I bet. This is the whole Eagle assemblage? Yes, and all the distributors and the, uh, the trade organization for all the FBOs. I'm not going to put you on the spot to, and ask you what's going to be next 
for an eagle. But uh, um, let me let me ask you this: What is the next big hurdle? Well, let me tell you about those three slides. The first slide was a kind of a block diagram for how we would organize the production. Mm -hmm. And basically our commitment to the pilots, the plane owners, and to the existing producers of fuel, we get the STCs, we're not going to exercise this as a monopoly. Any qualified producer that has the right facilities and the right quality assurance uh, uh, capabilities will be allowed to get a license to produce this fuel on exactly the same terms and conditions as any other producer. Okay. And that's what that little block diagram demonstrated. Mm -hmm. Well, that caused a bit of a stir around the room, and then I went to the next slide. And that was another one of those pen droppers. <laughs> because it was a letter that I had received the day before from this very large chemical company I referred to. And in that letter, they said they are prepared to make this fuel in batches between a million gallons and 4.2 million gallons a batch and put it in rail cars in Houston. And they will do that and have it available sometime this summer. And all they need is a commitment from the uh, any one or more of the large distributors of gas to put rail cars down there and pick it up and, and take it to California or someplace else and sell it. Hmm. Hmm. So I will tell you that as of this summer, when that field gets made, this field will be, and these are kind of magic words for the reasons I'll explain next, commercially available, quote, end yes. quote. Yes. Put the quotes around those two words, commercially available. I understand available. the magic, but go ahead and tell our audience. Well, the magic to that was the next slide which was a copy of excerpts from this consent decree that exists out in California. That consent decree was entered into by all of the distributors and the FBOs are not all of them, but almost all of them in California as a result of a lawsuit from one of the uh, uh, Center for Environmental Health out there, an environmental group. And basically the primary purpose of that lawsuit was to get everybody that handled that 100 low load to put warning signs up about the lead on the fences and the gates and mm -hmm. the, I guess the bathroom walls of all their facilities. Um, but within that consent decree is language that says if a lower lead content high octane aviation gasoline becomes commercially available, you will stop selling 100 low lead. Oh boy. Oh, boy. So I put that up on a slide, but, Jeb, I'm sorry. I had to have a little fun. <laughs> I'm shocked. Shocked. Up in the corner of the slide, there's a picture, and it's a, 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 a an animal from the jungle that's about nine feet tall facing the camera in the little picture. And uh, underneath it, there's a caption, and it says, Gorilla Californis, and it's a 900-pound gorilla standing in the corner of the room. <laughs> and that's what that consent decree is. Uh -huh. It's the 900-pound gorilla standing at the corner of the ramp at every FBO in California. Yeah. 
So you're going to have a big summer. Well, I hope so. Uh, we're still waiting on somebody to commit to go pick the fuel up. Huh. Uh, we have a pricing schedule for it. We've given it to those folks. Uh, I will tell you that I am pleasantly surprised that we're able to get the fuel uh, priced as uh, what I think reasonably as it is. It's going to cost more than 100 low lead. Um, probably not nearly as, I mean, I've heard predictions that it was going to cost 10 or $15 a gallon or something. Right. That's crazy right. stuff. Um, but right now in California at uh, Bakersfield, uh, 100 low lead is selling at one, one of the three FBOs for the last time I checked 10 days ago for seven forty-five a gallon and another one for seven sixty-five, and at a third one for something like seven ninety a gallon. Uh-huh. And this fuel can, pretty much be delivered into the rail cars in Houston for about five bucks a gallon, I think. Wow. Wow. So, George, I everyone, cannot thank, thank you enough for your time today. Yeah. All right. Um, good luck um, putting the finishing touches on this. Again, congratulations to you and to Tim and your entire team out there. Um, we look forward to our first tankful. Well, uh, uh, I'm hoping to have a field day here at ADA in the near future, and I'm going to invite AOPA and and uh, uh, you know EAA if they want, and the American Bonanza Society, and I don't know maybe the Copa Cirrus Group. And I'm going to issue an invitation to Textron to go to the trouble to send. You know, it's, I mean, it's a lot of trouble for Textron to send a couple of their. Uh, I powered piston airplanes 56 minutes down the road from Wichita to Ada. I know, I know. It's it's an, it's unconscionable. And uh, we'll 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 uh, put the STCs on those airplanes if they don't already have them, and fill up one tank with uh, some of this uh, nice green G100 UL, and the other tank with 100 low lead. And let them go out and fly around, collect the data, download it, and we'll all share the data. There you go. George, again, congratulations uh, to everybody out there. Um, Thanks for a a very enlightening conversation. All right. Take care. Good to talk to you. We want to thank George. That was that was pretty fascinating. I thought I, yeah. I, I just sat back and listened to you guys talk, and uh, uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, I, I'm not sure how much of that he's he's talked about before, but uh, it was it was an interesting perspective. Uh, he's he's quite the storyteller. It reminds me of our friend Higdon in that regard. Yeah, but he, uh, he and uh, they they do have a, a somewhat uh, loose physical resemblance. Also, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so um, uh, now George is is one of a kind, and. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to know him and, and uh, uh, that he gives me the time of day. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of interesting things came out of that for me, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to the audience. So the, the one thing that I, I, I actually wrote down here, I wrote down the word green. All right. Uh, he said that that he implied that that's going to be the color of the fuel. People have been wondering about that. I hadn't heard that separately. Have you? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd... Uh, um, everybody was wondering, you know, is going to, you know, because we've got blue and we used to have red, and I don't, I guess, what jet fuel is like straw, straw, straw colored, straw yeah. colored. And everybody was wondering, uh, what color is this going to be? There was a purple fuel years ago, uh, one thirty, one forty five. Uh, red was eighty, eighty seven. Yeah. Um, blue, of course, is hundred low lead. Green was hundred one 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 hundred one thirty. Um, I'm not convinced that. Um, well. Uh, I'll, I'll let George speak for that, but uh, um, I, I um, uh, 
there's something tingling in the back of my head that says um, that that may not be the final caller. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. But and Anyways. I'm certainly you know I, I'm not the expert here. Yeah. So. Anyways, big thanks to George. That was terrific. Yes, big, thank you. Big time. Uh, and uh, thank you for tracking him down and, and making that happen. Oh, no, Joe. That was easy. Yeah. Moving on here. Um, so uh, just a couple of quick stories before we wrap this thing up. Um, FAA approves, approves use of off-the-shelf parts for older certificated aircraft. You seem yeah. to think this is a thing. Why? It is a big deal. Uh, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's a big deal. It's, it's uh, uh, um, something that will help uh, keep these airplanes flying. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, hats off to the Experimental Aircraft Association for, for being a, a big part of uh, – of this effort. Um, what this is, is a product of something called the Vintage Aircraft Replacement and Modification Article. Uh, is a program uh, at the FAA um, f- developed so that we can keep these planes flying, but also try to reduce the cost of parts for these airplanes. Um, and the, the fact of the matter is that there are many components of uh, probably, well, especially, I would think, aboard newer aircraft, but we're thinking vintage aircraft, those built before 1980 in this context, um, that are basically used off-the-shelf parts then, some of them automotive parts, and uh, the same parts can be used today simp- simply because they're no longer available with you know an FAA stamp of approval on them. Uh, whether the the, uh, the part uh, manufacturer refuses to go to the expense to get to to retain that approval, um, or the stock of those FAA approved parts is dried up and they just don't want to make any more, whatever. Now we're not talking about wings and ailerons here, folks, but we are talking about um, say you know uh, electrical relays. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are talking about. Um, um, other systems on the airplane, whether they're, whether they be fuses or uh, possibly circuit breakers, um, electrical components of, of one sort or another, um, there are many other types of parts. You know, they might be bushings, they might be bearings, they might be um, what have you, nuts and bolts even, uh, which are already fairly well standardized and available off the shelf. Or, or what we might call, or what used to be called COTS, commercial off-the-shelf uh, 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 components. Um, we haven't gotten down into alternators or batteries or, or, or tires or tubes or anything like that for Oil filters. Reasons. Oil filters. Hey, you know, there's a, there's a topic. It's going to be, uh, they'll be selling ice cubes in a very hot place before... Uh, we get to be using uh, frame oil filters. I asked you about this. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that because we talked about this. But yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. But but other things, apparently it's totally reasonable, right? Yeah, absolutely. Light bulbs, you know. Oh, ah, okay. Uh, and, and, no, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm, yeah. you're, you're very serious and that, that makes sense. Yeah, light bulbs yeah. are a, a good example. Okay. Yeah. So uh, so is this a done deal or is this a proposal or is this a, what's the... Well, um, let's read, let's go to the, um, the story from, um, Varma, uh, according to, to this story in, in general aviation news, um, uh, quote, uh, EAA association officials say with Varma and it's Victor Alpha, Romeo, Mike Alpha with Varma in place, some aspects of vintage aircraft ownership and operation 
are about to get a lot simpler. Um, and uh, this doesn't require any new regulations, orders, or advisory circulars, that uh, EAA officials uh, told GA News. Um, and um, the, the program apparently applies to parts whose failure would not, quote, prevent continued safe flight and landing. Um, what this means, according to EAA, is that many safety critical com components are not subject to the program, but there are plenty of hard-to-find parts that do meet Varman's criteria. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. All right, then. <clears throat> Good to hear. Yeah. Uh, this, this is, you know, it's kind of an offshoot of of uh, using an auto fuel te uh, STC. It's an offshoot of of uh, the NORSI program, which is, uh, and I forget the, the, the words that describe the acronym, but it's the... Uh, uh, not required for for safety uh, purposes, but maybe advisory, you know, like uh, installing a, a, a non-certified but uh, approvable angle of attack indicator. That's probably one of the biggest successes of the Norsi program, where uh, it's an advisory capacity, an advisory capability, uh, and doesn't replace an airspeed indicator or anything like that. But it does provide uh, additional information uh, that the pilot can use uh, in, in operating the airplane. Cool. Okay. Um, one more thing before we wrap this thing up. Um, so we are at a, a kind of notable anniversary of a very sad moment in aviation, general aviation history, and that is the uh, destruction of Meigs Field in Chicago. Um, yeah. That was uh, apparently 20 years ago um, is is yeah. when that happened. It doesn't, 20 years goes by fast. <laughs> I mean, at least it seems that way to us yes. old folks, but uh, yeah. Um, you, what, what do you know about, you, you, you have an involvement, you are not an involvement, but a, well, a, 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 a uh, you, a relationship yeah, I, to this. Yeah, I was um, actually I was in um, through MIGS a few months before uh, they dug up the runway. Um, um, had a little issue with crosswinds coming off the lake, getting out of there. But uh, um, the uh, I was also in in the industry in a in a um, government uh, government relations position at the time, and. Um, we really, really got um, um, hammered really hard on that by then Mayor uh, Daly Jr. Um, and he, right now, you know, uh, I don't know what that land is being used for. I don't know if it's a park or if it's a new convention center or whatnot, because I have not been back to Chicago since then and will not be back until, you know, maybe ever i don't know yeah but uh, i actually part, did in part I, because of that yeah i actually did i i, I had so um it's it's kind of a, a mile or so away from the uh i don't know if it's the chicago convention center i was there on my day job and McCormick got an center is it called yeah McCormick, thank you that's what it's called and uh i had some time off and took that time to go and actually walk out to the location of meigs field um and and walk to that ground a little bit you can't really get out to too much of it but uh, at the time, the what was the terminal building was still in existence. It had become some sort of visitor center, um, educational facility, as I recall, children's programs, things like that. And uh, and they were in the process of turning it, continuing to turn it into a park and and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, you know, but uh, 
um, at one of the things I noted um, at that time, and I can't say that it hasn't changed dramatically since then. This is like five, certainly before the pandemic. It was probably a couple of years before the pandemic. I was there. I noted that um, they, they not only not only did they they you know bulldoze the runway, um, and and there's a big fence. I couldn't actually get out into the area where the runway used to be, um, but you can see the area, and they've actually made mounds. They've actually turned it into kind of a rolling terrain now, um, or at least at that time. And so they they uh, have they. Done any, had they done anything to improve the property? I, I, I don't. Not at the time. Um, I, you know, at least not that I saw. Uh, like I said, the terminal building was there. The tower, the, the, the sort of wreckage of the tower. I mean, not, not wreckage, but it was just abandoned. Um, was there? I think I actually have a picture of myself standing in front of the tower. The tower. Wow. Um, and uh, yeah, so very, very sad thing. Very, very, you know, talk about politics. Oh my gosh. But uh, yeah. anyways, yeah. Um, yeah Twenty anyway. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Hopefully it doesn't happen again. I, you know, I mean, because you, know, you know, any day now that could happen to Santa Monica, for example. Um, any day now that could happen to St. Pete and Whitted, where we go for lunch. Yeah. Um, oh, that's another example. Exactly. Yeah. Um, any and day that could happen to Reed Hillview. You know, uh, that could. Um, there's uh, a long list or, or growing list of, of airplane. Air, excuse me. Growing list of airports. Yeah. Uh, that are that are threatened uh, by urban encroachment. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, you know, um, I think it's just long term, very short sighted. Yes, uh, it truly you know. is. I mean, it, it's it, like, yeah, you know, I mean, we try and tell these stories whenever possible about the way that these small airports are a community um, a benefit, you know, especially community in terms asset. of yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. In terms of like, you know, uh, not simply for recreational reasons, but for you know safety and and you know emergency, uh, uh, you know, uh, helping people during emergencies you know i mean uh, yeah over and over again we see these stories and so so uh, bulldozing your local airport is is a very very bad bad idea because you're going to need that airport one day um and there's a lot of people who need it right now so well, there's a lot of people who need it right now and you know i think you know, i don't know where to begin with this but on one level i'm i'm professional skeptic on a lot of the urban air mobility um, um, uh, talk uh, talk of urban air mobility and um, the uh, um, commuting to downtown city centers via automated uh, aircraft uh, uh, adult sized uh, drones if you will um, and I think it's a little bit um, disingenuous um, for people to suggest that these craft are just going to zoom around and, and land on uh, rooftops and, and discourse their passengers and, and this kind of thing. I think that's a, a fairly chaotic mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah. outcome. Uh, instead, they're going to probably want to go to a nearby airport. Right. One that's close to the city center. And Meigs was just like a poster child for it, being the, it, the ideally located general exactly, aviation airport. Exactly. Uh, and, and that that land has not been developed in 20 years and turned into something um, that was asked for, that was promised by the city fathers, that was, that was pitched as the reason to tear up the airport, I think is criminal. And some people should be taken out and flogged over that. But that's that's just me. That's just you. Yeah. That's just you. Yeah. 
Well, okay, there we go. Uh, time to put a fork in it. Um, so big thanks to uh, George Brawley for uh, taking some time to talk to us. George is the head of engineering at uh, GAMI, the General Aviation Modifications Incorporated. Um, you can learn more about GAMI, about George and GAMI, and uh, not only the G100UL uh, fuel, but other GAMI programs at their website, which is, uh, it's GAMI.com, G-A-M-I, Golf Alpha Mike india.com um and again big thanks to him for for taking the time uh and that's jeb burnside jeb is a uh, I, meant, well, I scrolled away no no that's that's who jeb is jeb is a freelance aviation writer and editor he serves as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine he's also a frequent contributor to other aviation publications you can find jeb's work online at aviationsafetymagazine.com also you can see some of his stuff at avweb.com and aea.net among others on social media he is uh, burnside j on twitter and uh, the magazine, Aviation Safety Magazine, is Av Safety Mag, also on Twitter. On Mastodon, uh, Jeb is uh, Burnside J at mytransponder.com. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a digital media producer. You can find me online in most places with the all-one-word username Jack Hodgson. For example, Twitter Jack Hodgson, YouTube Jack Hodgson, Patreon Jack Hodgson. On Mastodon, I'm Jack Hodgson at mytransponder.com. You can also find my ebooks on Amazon by searching for Around the Field in the Books section. And big thanks to all of you folks, uh, our listeners who are yet to be named, um, but uh, we're going to come up with a cool name for you, um, T-shirts and everything, hats. Uh, thank you for uh, taking the time to listen. If possible, please become a supporter of this podcast uh, at patreon.com slash uncontrolled airspace, or you can make a PayPal tip jar donation care of the email address podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help to us in doing this thing. Uh, and we also love to hear from you, so you can use that same email address podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com send us your comments and questions so anyways that's it jeb uh, do you have any words of wisdom for us three things airspeed altitude and brains that's what we fly with we need at least two of them to successfully complete the flight (laughs) all right and that's enough talking let's go flying